This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to TraumaCast. This is Kevin Pei, your moderator, and along with me is Matt Martin, who will be co-moderating this morning. How's it going, Matt? Hey, glad to be here. Thanks, Kevin. This drama cast is entitled Modern Evidence-Based Sepsis Resuscitation Are the Process and Arise Trials, the End of Early Goal-Directed Resuscitation. Uh, we have the distinct privilege of having two great guest speakers today, Dr. Donald Yeely and Dr. Louis Skinner. Uh, just a brief introduction, Dr. Yeely is Professor and Chair of Emergency Medicine, also Professor of Medicine and Clinical Translational Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He is the lead author on the randomized trial of protocol-based care for early, uh, early septic shock published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2014. And Dr. Skinner is currently Chief of Division of Trauma and the Director of the Surgical ICU at the Kern Medical Center, California. She was previously on the faculty of Northwestern and, and a very busy surgeon and researcher. Dr. Zealy and Skinner, thank you very much for sharing your valuable time and uh, expertise with us today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. So, Dr. Yeley, I, I would like to start with you, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, giving our audience a quick summary of the process trial and maybe start from the point where the group decided it was worthwhile take, uh, undertaking this large project. Um, okay, thank you very much. So, uh, the process trial really began uh, in late 2006, 2007, when a group of us uh, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center asked ourselves, you know, where was the evidence as far as early resuscitation? You may recall the original seminal Rivers paper was published in 2001 and really was landmark in a lot of ways. Uh, predominantly, it was the first uh, approach to sepsis that really had a profound impact. If you would look back before 2001, there'd be very small trials that showed promise, and then as soon as it was done in either a bigger number or um, a more uh, rigorous format, um, the promise of any specific intervention would fade away, and we can list many of those. And so sepsis looked dismal. I remember, you know, I trained in the mid-'80s. I remember thinking, you know, you sprinkled some water on sepsis people, and you hoped that good things would happen, but we, we truly thought that this was going to be an entrenched disease, and it was really between the patient and their maker, and we were kind of at the, at the side. And what Dr. Rivers showed us is that uh, early recognition and early treatment really could matter. In the years that followed the original sepsis trial that Rivers published, which was really done at one site in, in Detroit, um, there was lots of follow-up work. The work wasn't exclusively observational or, or quasi-experimental, but it was largely that. And people began to implement versions of that branded early goal-directed therapy. And that branded version, in capital letters, required central venous catheterization early and used physiologic endpoints to supplement and to trigger actions, fluid actions, blood, vasopressor, inotrope use, um, in ways that might not have happened before. And almost all the follow-up trials 
were off-on designs and would show that if you began to try to implement goal-directed therapy as described, outcomes were better. Our concern was uh, a few things. First and foremost was the size of the effect really uh, durable. In the original Rivers trial, mortality was 46% in people who got usual care, but that usual care really differed from what most people would have experienced as usual care in emergency departments. And then the experimental group went down to 30%, which is a you know dramatic change in mortality. So we wondered if the magnitude of the effect would be there. We also wondered if changes in ancillary care might either multiply that effect or cut into that effect over time. At that point, we were five or six years out from the original trial. We wondered how durable the effect would be over time. And did you need the whole branded early goal-directed therapy approach? Um, was a central venous catheter necessary in everyone? Was blood transfusion at the thresholds used in that trial, which differ from many of the common thresholds? We now know transfusion itself is not an indolent event. It creates another set of uh, inflammatory and thrombogenic events. Uh, the use of inotropes was very unusual, and maybe that was the way to go, maybe not. So we decided that we would do a trial that didn't just replicate um, the uh, Rivers approach, but would ask some of these questions in, in a more basic manner, and that's when we designed a process. We began in the design of it in late 2006 and 2007 and began enrolling a year after that. And it took uh, six years to enroll the patients that we thought were necessary to answer the question. So um, we began with a three-arm trial to answer all of those questions. Um, and the three arms were goal-directed therapy as described in the original Rivers protocol with a central venous catheter and oximetric monitoring and using the same triggers uh, as, as done in the original protocol. The second was the opposite extreme, which was a usual care, essentially a wild type where um, the physicians at the bedside would use whatever judgment and get no prompts. And the third arm, and, and this is what differs our trial from both the Australian and the British trials that, that came out after ours, is we had a protocolized arm but used a very simple protocol. It didn't require a central venous catheter or arterial monitoring. And it really just was a simple protocol that prompted the bedside physicians to give fluids earlier in greater volumes than they might have done otherwise using very simple clinical prompts at the bedside and then move on to vasopressors if things hadn't uh, improved quickly. So kind of a, you could look at it as a structured control or just a different experimental arm. Uh, right before we began our trial, there was a large NIH conference about what's the best control arm. Is it, is it wild type, which is how things happen in the outside world? Or is it the best simple care that could be delivered? The end result of that conference was they're both useful and useful in different ways. And so we actually incorporated both into our trial. We thought initially that we would see we used the river's low end of the mortality estimate, um, thinking that we would see roughly 30% mortality, and calculated that if we wanted to detect a difference that was even smaller than what he could see, believing that 6 or 7% would be equally important as a bigger effect It's because it's such an awful disease. We thought we would need 1,945 patients uh, split equally across the three arms. Uh, we then began enrolling. We had sites come up gradually and some sites drop out, but enrolled at over 30 sites, disproportionately large academic medical centers because they had to have a, a research enterprise. And at the end of the trial, uh, first off, we were able to uh, 
curtail the sample size. We didn't really stop the trial early in that our overall mortality rate was 20%, and that's way lower than the 30%. And from a mathematic perspective, if you're if you're main outcome is the absolute mortality that happened in hospital, and that, that's what we chose. That's exactly what Rivers had chosen. Um, the further you get from 50% mortality, you actually need fewer subjects. And so we wouldn't expose people to a randomization scheme when we had enough to detect the exact amount of difference that we had asked for at the beginning of the trial. So nothing about the endpoints changed. We just, the, the observed uh, response rate allowed us to. This is, I wouldn't call this an adaptive design, but I would call it responsive to the current data. And so a, a, one of the big misconceptions is that the trial stopped early and didn't fulfill. It fulfilled exactly what it had said in the initial filings, not only with the IRB, but with the NIH, that we would be able to detect at least a minimum difference of 6 to 7 percent. And what we found is that the three different treatment approaches resulted in three different strategies or uh, characteristics of resuscitation. All three were early, though. We did not test delayed resuscitation. Everybody was enrolled in the emergency department, so there's no other forms of sepsis in there, and they all were enrolled early. The groups got varying amounts of fluid, roughly 500 cc's difference amongst the three different groups. The simple protocol gets the most fluid, and it gets it earlier because it, it's simple to deliver. And the goal-directed therapy group got kind of in between but eventually catches up because it, it requires insertion of a catheter in all subjects. We found that while all the groups had slightly different characteristics in how things were delivered, each had it delivered early, you know, within an hour of arrival beginning, and each created uh, a mortality uh, observation that was better than the previous um, uh, trials in the 18 to 21% range, but not difference amongst themselves. Um, there were some minor differences in resource utilization amongst the groups that really aren't terribly dramatic. Uh, the groups that get a little more fluid might have had slightly more renal replacement therapy. Um, the groups that required, like the gold therapy required a central catheter, have a higher ICU admit rate. That kind of goes hand in hand. Those aren't determinative findings. But what we found is that mortality has dropped uh, over the 10-year period. And if you pay attention early, that is, recognize and begin the treatment early, begin antibiotics, begin fluids, and just use some prompted, your, your goal-directed therapy could be lowercase, including your own personal goals for an individual patient. If you start early and stay attached, you end up with much better outcomes. It's not so much the issue about uh, physiologic measurements and central catheters. Now, obviously, some people in the non-goal-directed therapy arm got central catheters, but by our surveillance, they weren't used to either trigger actions or to do oximetric monitoring. Uh, less than 4% across the other arms had even a spot check of an SCVO2 monitoring. So what we found is that early and aggressive therapy matters, and how you do it is less important than that you do recognize that uh, septic shock can be kind of indolent, um, and requires aggressive actions uh, to intervene. The follow-up ARISE and PROMISE trials were both two-arm trials uh, done in Australia and in uh, the UK. They used a usual care arm versus a goal-directed therapy. Slightly different amounts of fluid given the difference between the, the U.S. and other locations, but really had the same basic observations. 
Uh, our trial, the initial illness burden looks a lot like Rivers. It's not identical, so our initial uh, SOFA scores are really identical to the Rivers trial when they started. Rivers lactates were a little bit higher. We actually analyzed uh, the, the, the patient groups by highest um, SOFA scores, highest lactates also, looked at the upper third of each, the really sickest of the sick, and it still didn't matter. whether, you, As long as you used an aggressive approach, there was no difference amongst the arms. So I think this doesn't so much refute goal-directed therapy. What it says is that the key message is to recognize early, uh, make sure you, you use multiple tools to recognize, and you begin to intervene early and aggressively, and there's probably more than one pathway to that. One of them could be the classic goal-directed therapy. One could be just a very good clinician who decides to reevaluate the patient multiple times over the, over the first four to six hours when, when things are, are most amenable to intervention. So, so Don, this is Matt Martin, uh, and again, congratulations on a great trial. Uh, one of the things that's a little hard to parse out, I mean, it's clear what the difference is between the Rivers protocol and the other two groups. You know, they got more, more blood products, they got more pressors. But what was the main difference, you think, between the, the early protocol-directed non-Rivers or the usual care groups? Because it seemed like they got similar fluids, they got similar blood products. Between usual care and protocolized standard care is what we called it. The yeah. normal journal made us call it something different in the paper. Um, the people in the protocolized standard group got more fluid than the usual care group in the first six hours. There's, that's the greatest difference between the two. Rivers actually falls in between that if you look at the tables. And different from that, they also get it quicker. So the velocity of it, because it's a very simple protocol, it says give this fluid right away as opposed to an individual physician having to do that. Remember in our design, uh, the bedside treating physician did all the usual care, but in the two other arms there was a team that came to the bedside. And that we did that for two reasons, to make sure there wouldn't be contamination between uh, the experimental arms and usual care and to make sure that the protocols would be followed. So that's one big difference there is the velocity of it. And if you look at some of the curves, while the fluids come closer together, they're still way different between uh, the PSC group and usual care. Uh, neither of the non-Rivers uh, branded goal-directed therapy use much presser or much blood. And our experiences are very much like almost every other trial outside of the original Rivers trial. Uh, the pattern of use in the Rivers arm is very much like the pattern of use, although the absolute numbers differ, and the, the, the non-use. So it suggests that perhaps uh, the blood threshold as defined may not be as important as we once thought. Uh, thank you. So, Ruby, for surgeons looking at these studies that were largely performed in the emergency uh, department and with some surgical patients being excluded, how do we as surgeons uh, embrace the concepts of early directed therapy, however you interpret it, and how have you incorporated it into your practice? Well, uh, that's a good question, and I also want to congratulate uh, Don for, for his work. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, you know, I think as surgeons, you know, we uh, tend to be aggressive. Uh, we tend to, you know, res uh, have a focus on resuscitation, particularly for surgeons who uh, are trauma surgeons and, and work in trauma centers and things like that. So I, I think this uh, early goal-directed therapy makes sense intuitively. Um, you know, I, I think this is this study, uh, these studies, the ARISE process and, and PROMISE studies are an evolution, a natural evolution of our, you know, current knowledge of the pathophysiology of sepsis and septic shock. 
the river study obviously was an important study at the time. Um, you know, during that time in the in the uh, the mid 90s when he started enrolling patients for that study, uh, you know, we were emerging out of a couple of decades of extensive research based on the uh, systemic inflammatory response, cytokine response to infection, and there was also you know a lot of focus on uh, oxygen delivery and extraction. You know, with the focus on the Shoemaker paper uh, papers that. Uh, showed that supernormal delivery had some survival benefit, primarily in trauma patients, not sepsis patients. So all of those things went together to, you know, really uh, focus on, you know, resuscitation, monitoring, tissue monitoring, and things like that. But over the last few years, as the, you know, uh, the survival, surviving sepsis guidelines have, uh, you know, been revised a couple of times and, you know, the literature has really, uh, I think been more focused on more elegant resuscitation, you know, based on organ support with low tidal volume ventilation, restrictive transfusion practices. You know, the, the complexity of sepsis, you know, is, is much less, uh, is, I think the knowledge of the complexity of the disease process has evolved as well. And so I think the resuscitation being one small arm of it, um, is important, but all of the other things that have evolved, I think, have contributed to why we've seen such a significant drop in mortality. And you can't just base it alone on those first six hours of resuscitation. Uh, th that's a great, actually, segue to, to my next question um, sure. for, for both of you. So, Don, I, I wondered, you know, it, even in uh, Rivers' original study, in the intervention arm, the mortality was 30%. And I remember back then, we were actually all shocked how low it can go. And so now you've pushed it in your study. You've, your, your values are down to mortality of 18 to 20%. And my question is, have we gone as low as we can get with mortality, and how do we push the envelope further? Well, I sure hope we haven't gone as low as we can. I, don't, I can't predict the future. A mortality of 18 to 20% for, for this disease as someone enters the emergency department would place it near the top still of anything that I see. I mean, major vessel CVA and gunshot wound to the head are about the things that compete with this. Even acute myocardial infarction is not in the hemisphere of 18% in hospital mortality. So this is lots of improvement. I suspect, as, as we've all noted, it's because of many things that we do better than we did before. It's not any one singular thing. Uh, perhaps if we could identify even earlier um, interventions that would matter. About three-quarters of people who en are ended up being diagnosed with sepsis gain their portal of entry through the emergency department. And about two-thirds to three-quarters of the people who gain entry to the emergency department who eventually end up having sepsis came from the field. They were brought in by EMS providers. What if we could identify even sooner? Maybe even a smaller intervention could have a more profound impact if applied before the cascade has had a chance to even run amok for an additional hour or two. If you think about it, we screen for acute myocardial infarction, particularly ST segment elevation in the field, not because we're going to do catheterizations in the field, but to get things moving. And should we be screening and perhaps intervening even in the field? The challenge with that is how do you identify sepsis? There's not an EKG for sepsis. That tells us, ah, it's here, it's not here. There are you know, the extremes of cases we can pick up, but how would we pick those up and what's the right intervention in the field because you'll have some 
misclassification given the environment. That's one. I think the other opportunity is the timing and interplay between resuscitation, antibiotics, and vasopressor support. We know that early matters in all those, but do we know really what the exact amounts are? I can tell you the average amounts across all the trials of fluid they got in the first six hours and how much they get in the first three days, but have we optimized that? Is there an opportunity to fine-tune it even more? Is it, is it really open to spigot, or is there really a different approach for this that could even further drive down uh, mortality and morbidity? Don, uh, what are your thoughts about tools like uh, ultrasound, bedside ultrasound? You know, when you say usual care uh, these days, um, you know, does that involve the use of ultrasound to look at IVC diameter to, to guide resuscitation, you know, looking at cardiac function, you know, to get a, a better sense of resuscitation. What are your thoughts about that? I think uh, from the data that we have available right now, anything that gets a clinician to the bedside for repeat assessment is likely to be a good thing. How much they differ amongst different opportunities, I can't tell you yet. We just don't know enough. Mm -hmm. I think the key difference was uh, making sure that we recognize the simple fact that it's easy to underestimate either the initial presence or the response to therapies. And if you use more than one tool, you're less likely to get fooled. So ultrasound is one tool. Passive leg lift is another tool. Mm -hmm. Repeat right. physical exams, another tool. Repeat lactate, SCVO2 or central venous pressure. Each one is flawed, but each one when used in combination with something else, it's you're going to less likely have those holes in the Swiss cheese lineup and someone be under-recognized and under-treated. So I think they're all potential. I wouldn't be able to tell you right now mm -hmm. that one is dramatically better than the other, and that's what we saw in our trials, that the key was that people were engaged. Let me ask both of you, Ruby and, and Don, then how do you do your initial fluid resuscitation? You know, the, the surviving sepsis, you know, bundle now says 30 cc's per kilogram, uh, in the first three hours, which is a decent amount of fluid, Don, your, your data from process would seem to say a bedside clinician can just kind of wing it and judge how much to give. So uh, so are you guys using the 30 cc's per kilogram, or are you individualizing it, and how are you individualizing it? The original Rivers trial used a 20 to 30 cc bolus to define refractory shock. Somehow that has morphed into 30 cc's per kilo, but the actual trial said 20 to 30 cc's per kilogram, which means 20 is the minimum. And in that particular paper, they never reported what was the pre-randomization bolus. The other papers do. They All you get in the original Rivers paper is what was the total fluid given. So you don't really know what the amount was. In the process trial, we simplified it after uh, enrolling less than a quarter of the patients and to make sure you give at least one liter. The idea was to pick off the, the low-hanging fruit. In other words, people who were really not that um, autonomically or, or vasomotor unstable. You don't want en entering them into the trial. They can't benefit as much. Um, so you asked, how do I do it? My own approach would be absent contraindications. I'd probably use a liter or two up front in the first hour or two and then check the responses by either CVP or bedside assessments, passive leg lifts, my examination, serial lactates, you know, some other measure, and then use incremental 500 cc's boluses. You know, in, in those trials, you can always see what the average amount of fluid is, but you'll recognize there's wide variations around that, and that's why one size will never fit all. 30 cc's per kilo will be great for many people, maybe even most people, and it'll be horrible for a few. Sure. Right. How about you, Ruby? 
Uh, similar, you know, I, I think in general, uh, you know, f uh, fluid is given automatically, you know, even before you get to the bedside in most places. You know, we have protocols in place hospital-wide um, uh, to, you know, for the early detection and, uh, and for fluid resuscitation. Uh, barring um, you're dealing with a patient who's fluid overloaded or who has some, you know, major uh, cardiac pathology that would limit uh, the amount of uh, fluids given, you know, generally we we go to the, we use about 30 cc's per kilo, and really, with the caveat that the patients are being monitored aggressively to uh, to assess the fluid response. Um, you know, our tools in the ICU and even in the ED are you know to place central lines when appropriate. Uh, potentially use the CVP, but also to use um, tools like ultrasound uh, to evaluate the IVC diameter. Uh, serial lactates and things like that to, to really guide responses to fluid uh, with the hope of limiting, you know, over-resuscitation in many of these patients early on. Interesting that both of you experts are still, if, if, uh, correct me if I didn't hear um, correctly, but both of you are still uh, at certain points using CVP as a potential measure of volume status. And um, it, is that the state of practice now? Are, are people in general still using CDP as a marker of fluid status or perhaps a fluid responsiveness? I, so we use it uh, much less frequently. So it, it is occasionally used, but not universally in, in, in my emergency department practice. And you've already hit on the key thing. I think as an absolute value, central venous pressure is not particularly helpful. I know if you have a CVP of two, you need volume. I know if you have 20, you don't. But in between, it does not answer the question that's at hand, and which is, will uh, will volume improve you? And so it's more a, a dynamic measurement. You've, you're familiar with Paul Merrick's work on that. And so I think that's the reason why the CVP is less dependent on today, but not, not without value. I would just, again, get back to the point is each one of these individual measurements, whether we're talking about a physical exam criteria or a laboratory study or oximetric or a pressure, each one can mislead you because of uh, variances in physiology and response, and the key is to use more than one if you're going to assess someone and not under-recognize or occasionally uh, over-treat. And I would, you know, echo that. Uh, you know, certainly, I, I, don't, I don't use CVP as, as, as much as I did when I was in training. Uh, we also play swans in almost every patient, you know, that crossed the threshold of the ICU, whether they needed it or not. Um, uh, I think ultrasound is, is, is evolving and certainly can be very handy uh, to get a sense of uh, volume status and fluid responsiveness, as well as just kind of the global assessment of cardiac function and contractility. And you can get a sense of whether a person is, is volume, you know, uh, resuscitated looking at uh, the heart as well with ultrasound when it's available. Um, so I, I think the, the tools vary. Um, CVP is, is certainly can be used in situations where you may not have other tools available um, and can serve as a guide. Uh, again, you know, as Don was saying, it's not uh, the absolute number, but trends, um, particularly when you're dealing with a CVP that's either really low or really high, I mean, that makes sense, you know, um, but in between, uh, it, it can be also useful um, in regards to how the number changes in response to fluids. I really think that um, pressors used early and appropriately can be very helpful. 
uh, particularly to limit the amount of volume that patients get. Um, and I think in general, uh, the trend is to use less uh, volume, less crystalloid, uh, you know, based on the studies that have uh, come out to, that have shown that large volumes of normal saline, for example, can cause uh, renal failure um, and things like that. So really uh, we try to uh, be very uh, uh, specific and, uh, and, and limit the amount of resuscitation uh, that is used early on. So uh, let me ask you, both of you again, Ruby and Don, so now you you know, you, you're telling your resident how to resuscitate this septic patient, uh, you know, and, and they need some pretty, pretty clear and hard goals. So, so what are you telling them to guide their resuscitation, and not only when to start and continue, when to stop? Uh, is it lactate clearance? Is it CBO2? Is it a CVP target? What do you think is, you know, the best measure that you can tell a resident simply to do to resuscitate a septic patient? So I'll focus mine on the on the emergency department side because it's where I uh, work and live. Um, I remind them that if they don't think about it, uh, partially compensated forms of septic sepsis and septic shock will be there, and they will just not recognize them. Those are the people who go on to have a cardiac arrest after you admit them, and that's not a good thing. Uh, it doesn't get you off the hook. And then recognize that the key is early recognition. Antibiotics as soon as all the source uh, culturing is done and tr any source treatments are done. Um, and then using more than one tool and having a goal in your head, that means you have to go back to the bedside. And we talk about all the options. And I say, tell me which two you're going to use up front. If it's going to be a CVP and something else, that's perfectly fine. The goal is to teach them that sepsis, particularly early on, requires a lot of attention. It's not one set of orders and you're done. It requires reassessment again and again because not, not one size will fit everybody. That's, that's how we do it. I also suggest I don't care if you start with normal saline, but for the reasons that you just heard, I have them switch over to Ringer's lactate or plasmalite if we're going to be needing large volume resuscitation to try to avoid all of those uh, inflammatory and, and uh, end organ uh, problems that large volume saline resuscitations can result. In the emergency department, we never see those. We, uh, we often give somebody six liters of something and you deal with it after we uh, <laughs> have sent them upstairs. I'm trying to say, hey, let's try to be a little nicer to our downstream partners. Uh, bedside uh, uh, evaluation, constant evaluation and reevaluation. Um, I think uh, lactate clearance is, is very useful. Uh, you know, we focus on that and uh, base deficit. Um, SVO2 is used, uh, we use it occasionally, um, but I, I think um, the, the, I think if you want to be a purist about SVO2, you know, the patients should probably have a swan placed and you should measure it, you know, at the, from the tip of the PA. Um, but, you know, t typically we will we'll look at lactate clearance um, and, and things like that. Um, I, I think it's imp important to always think about the disease process broadly and, you know, also focus on source control, make sure your antibiotics are broad enough if, if you need to be broad or directed if you have an idea of the source of, inf uh, of, of the site of infection. And obviously source control if you're dealing with something that requires some type of surgical intervention. 
every patient is different. Um, uh, you know, uh, thinking about the cause of, of, of low flow is important. As we know, it's not just hypovolemia. Uh, you know, it's it's a number of different mechanisms that affect the cardiovascular response. So always thinking about choice of pressors and, and things like that is important as well. One of the things I'd like to add is in our trial process, but also the overseas trials, if you were going directly to the operating room from the emergency departments in a way that would impair the ability to be fully participatory in any one of the three arms, you were not enrolled in the trial. That's not to say anybody with a surgical disease uh, was excluded, but mm -hmm. if you were immediately leaving the emergency department for a colectomy or whatever, right. you were not uh, enrolled. So that that makes it uh, a little harder to directly uh, transfer to some of the folks uh, that you might care for. Mm -hmm. um, that was really for mostly the ability to to make sure that any differences had to do with treatment differences, not lack of ability to adhere to a protocol. Right. A question I have for you, Don, is um, what are your thoughts about the use of dobutamine kind of blindly without, you know, cardiac monitoring, um, using a pure inotrope with, without, you know, the knowledge of cardiac dysfunction? Well, in, from our experiences, um, the use of an inotrope has dropped dramatically compared to what was reported in the Rivers trial, even in our own version of the Rivers arm. Uh, the pattern of use looks similar. In other words, a certain percentage got it higher than the other two arms, but it's nowhere near as high. So even when you have the monitoring in place, it doesn't seem to be triggered as often as Dr. Rivers had experienced. Mm -hmm. And in the other two arms, it was virtually non-existent for all the reasons you just noted, that, that people just did not choose to whip the heart, as it were, when they had no knowledge of actually what the underlying function is. And that seems to make sense to me, and it doesn't look like you pay a penalty for it. So that, that um, brings me to a question, actually, for both of you. Again, I have, um, I have a resident who will ask. It seems like the national paradigm uh, in the intensive care unit is to move away from, and I guess in, in the emergency department as well, is to move away from any form of invasive monitoring, be that an arterial line or a central line or, God forbid, a PA catheter. But... but how important is monitoring? Is there still a role in, in, in invasive monitoring in the initial six-hour period and certainly what happens after they leave the emergency department if they're in the intensive care unit for the remainder of the resuscitation? Maybe we'll start with uh, Ruby. Sure. I think absolutely. Um, you know, I think the art of uh, the PA catheter as far as placement and evaluation of the of the parameters has been lost and it still appears on you know the exams the board exams uh, critical care boards and things like that um, you know there is a role uh, I, I think we've become less invasive in general in medicine and in surgery and um, you know uh, we do have tools that are, are very useful um, ultrasound uh, critical care ultrasound is is, is evolving um, if you will, and I think um, is being applied more and more. You know, certainly at our institution, um, the sur the surgery surgical intensivists we've partnered with the medical intensivists uh, to try to um, train uh, the residents hospital wide um, with the use of it. So I think that has its role, but it's not always applied, particularly in you know a surgical patient, an open abdomen, an obese patient. You may not be able to get the views that you need. So you obviously we obviously have to have other tools available. Um, I think arterial lines aren't really that invasive to me and can be very useful. 
Um, and, you know, occasionally uh, a patient may need a swan. Uh, we may need to answer a question. The swan may not have to stay in for days and days, but occasionally we want to, you know, we'll, we'll have a patient that has a low flow state or a persistent acidosis, and the issue is, is this cardiac in nature, or, you know, uh, does it have to do with uh, volume, and we may not have that answer. And so I think you all, uh, we always have to have the ability to ramp up and use those invasive um, measures when needed. I share very similar views, and I think, you know, trainees like declarative statements. They like do and don't do kind of things. And <laughs> the problem is, over time, we, we recognize that nuance exists. And so I trained in the do phase, which is uh, PA catheters, central venous catheters, arterial lines. Um, and now we're in a phase where we recognize that perhaps uh, many people can't benefit from them, but they, all, they have the same risks of the procedure as the person who can benefit from them. So the risk-reward changes. It's not homogenous across the population. And I think it would be unwise to throw them out, even in the process trial. Half the people in the non-rivers arm got a central catheter, not for monitoring, but at least for access. Mm -hmm. Some had uh, arterial lines. We didn't. We discouraged it, but didn't uh, prevent it from happening. And so I think the key is using those devices when, in fact, they deliver a benefit for your patient, either uh, a, a therapeutic benefit, you need to instill a presser, you don't have access for a large volume resuscitation, or the examination uh, will not allow you to monitor resuscitation well. And for some people, the, the exam, perhaps coupled with ultrasound and lactate clearance, is fine. For others, it's simply not enough. And um, I, it's hard for trainees to recognize that it's not a yes-no answer. It's somewhere in between. What I don't want to do is get caught between swinging pendulums where you go from pl placing these devices in everybody and then the opposite end, doing it in no one, and that means excluding a few people who really could have benefited from it. Right. Unfortunately, you know, the um, just like anything, um, you know, uh, learning how to do procedures require volume and practice. And you know, we're not uh, placing swans as much um, anymore. And you know, central lines, uh, probably so. But you know, I, I don't know if trainees are getting the experience to be able to do some of these things on their own once they finish training. I think you're right. I think it'll be concentrated in a smaller number of hands. I think you're right. exactly right about that. Right. I wonder after the initial resuscitation period where we've met these certain goals, mean arterial pressures and lactate clearance, whether or not you use CVP or SCVO2, what do the two of you use as uh, a marker that your resuscitation is working? So in other words, what do you guys use as perfusion indices? Maybe, Don, you can start. Yeah. yeah, I'll start. So obviously the easiest to start with is uh, some measurement of arterial pressure, whether it's mean arterial pressure, either directly measured or, or calculated, recognizing that that in itself is an insufficient measure. I still believe, in, and, and often in the emergency department this is overlooked, that um, renal function, and I mean dynamic renal functioning, how much urine you're putting out, my other line of research deals with risk stratification and pneumonia and heart failure and PE. And one of the truisms about any one of these bad illnesses is as the kidney goes, the rest of the body goes. And so um, if you have evidence of kidney injury acutely, it means you're not optimizing things or, you know, perhaps the, the, um, 
the underlying perturbation has been much more entrenched than you might have understood and it's going to be more difficult. So for me, those would be the two simplest bedside parameters to follow. And in my world, pe people often fail to either rigorously watch the uh, mean arterial pressure or watch the urine output after the first hour. It just kind of uh, happens along. Obviously, high targets for the uh, arterial pressure aren't needed. You've seen that trial where, you know, trying to get above 60 to 65 doesn't really confer dramatic benefit in a large group of patients. It may in an individual, but at least being aware that you have a target for that as well as for uh, ongoing urine output and, and creatinine. Um, and I would say my, our, you know, our approach is, is pretty similar. Um, you know, looking at uh, clearance of, of lactate and um, uh, improve, uh, improvement in acidosis, you know, our measures, and I think it's just judgment, too. I mean, that's going to the bedside, looking at uh, trends and, and maps and urine responses, urine output, um, all of those things together uh, are, are useful to determine um, whether or not the resuscitation is appropriate. Um, and so, uh, and that's generally what, what, what we do. And uh, let me ask you both: What's the role of steroids in these patients' mm -hmm. early resuscitation? How are you How are you using them now for septic shock? Uh, similar to the well, following the surviving sepsis guidelines, steroids are. It's interesting how that process has evolved. Um, you know, when you think back to the 90s uh, during the whole cytokine research era. Uh, you know, steroids, at one point there were a couple trials where they were given in huge doses, grams, you know, to try to uh, limit the inflammatory response and, you know, that didn't work. Patients had um, the immunologic uh, effects caused, you know, infections and poor outcomes. And then it was thought that, well, you should do a stem test and, you know, maybe give uh, less of a dose or, um, and, and, and that could be of benefit. But I think uh, the, the use of a steroid drip uh, once you, with refractory hypotension uh, can be useful. Um, you know, certainly I think we think about it during the early resuscitative period when you have a patient who's received a lot of fluids. You're, you know, going to your second or third presser and, you know, they're still not responding and you think that you've, you, at least you have antibiotics on board or you think you've got source control underway, then you, you, you've got to start thinking about, okay, well, what's going on hormonally with this patient? You know, are we dealing with adrenal insufficiency and maybe we ought to uh, start replacing steroids? So typically, we'll just do a steroid drip um, and, you know, those patients are usually on physiologic vasopressin as well. Um, if you're down, you know, that tree of, of refractory hypotension. And I agree, too. So I think the role nowadays, I, I'm old enough to have lived through a couple cycles of steroid uh, euphoria and disappointment. Um, I, we could have this conversation about spinal cord trauma and be the same conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think there's the subset that, that clearly, even in the very beginning, even when I see them in the emergency department, are at very high risk, if not obvious, um, adrenal insufficiency, you know, had been on long-term suppression and had some recent change or withdrawal. That's, a, that's not really who we're talking about. You're asking more about what, what's this relative adrenal insufficiency mm -hmm. that would otherwise be unsuspected. And um, I think that I would be uncomfortable beginning um, empiric um, uh, steroids until I had clearly defined that there was volume and vasopressor-resistant shock. And then at that point, I might consider it. Now you're down to a tiny subset of the initial group that you were identifying that that may be a possibility. And that's usually 
you know, a few hours into the resuscitative phase. Uh, Don, I operationally, from a study standpoint, these are very well controlled in the emergency resuscitation, but, you know, there's been a huge push from our emergency medicine colleagues to get the patient out of the emergency department as soon as possible. So could you speak to the audience about how, how is this operationally functional that you're able to keep your patients down there for that long? And then the second part of that question, and, and I'm hoping Ruby will chime in as well, is those of us who are on the inpatient side of things, how do we, how do we use this data? How do, we, how do we implement this in our daily practice? So uh, you have an interesting um, misconception about how process was run. We did not require the patient to be in the emergency department zero to six hours. They had to be enrolled, but they could continue their care anywhere they went. Our, our belief was the drywall surrounding you didn't have much to do with your outcome. It was the behavior of the team caring for you that had more to do with it. And it's also why you had to have teams delivering the care in the two experimental arms so that that adherence would continue whether it was in the emergency department or in the ICU. So ours was a combined ED-ICU trial. Some places all of the care happened in the ED because, in fact, that's the kinetics of getting a bed. Um, but it was never clearly intended to be that. The Rivers trial, all the care happened in the emergency department by both plan but also by how Henry Ford Hospital functions and that a, a wait of 6 to 12 hours for an ICU bed was just the way things were going to be. So it simply worked out that way. Um, I don't think, I think the key step, no matter where you're doing, is recognizing that whether it's exactly six hours or some other shorter duration, that you need to stay on top of this early on. And, and if there's going to be a handoff, whoever gets it has to continue the same type of assess and reassess and be aggressive kind of behavior. I don't think it's any different than that right now. Um, and so we do try to get people to their destination unit as quick as possible, but it means that there has to be a seamless handoff between it. And it's why, you know, this continuum between emergency care and critical care is becoming more and more linked. Uh, probably um, across the country, one of the largest groups of critical care trainees are people coming out of base emergency medicine training because at the end of the day, we do critical care whether you like it or not. Right. Um, I, you know, very similar uh, here. Uh, you know, the, to me, the uh, my philosophy is that critical care is not a location. It's 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 a concept and it's a it's a team. And you know, uh, the nursing crisis um, is is significant. And um, in California, you know, uh, uh, there, you know, we have a large um, immigrant population here. And our ERs are overrun with patients, um, and our ability to uh, ramp up and, and get these patients where they need to be is often limited. And so we may have, you know, 24 or 48-hour waits with patients who are critical in the um, ER before they get to their ICU bed. And so really the, the goal is to provide the care uh, that they need uh, wherever they are and, um, and uh, you know, have – uh, teams, uh, not just physicians, but nurses and other staff that are trained across the board to pro to provide that care. And so that's, you know, kind of uh, where we do. I, I don't think that the, the care that the, the patients receive in the ED versus whether or not they're in the R PACU for a day or the ICU is, is any different. The care generally um, should be seamless. Those are great points. In the trauma community, we have a lot of uh, interest in a balanced resuscitation where we're tolerating, uh, we're tolerating a lower blood pressure, a lower mean arterial pressure, as long as the patient is grossly showing signs of 
a proper perfusion. And I wonder whether or not there's room to relax on the mean arterial pressure of 65 goals. And, and what's the, what is the state of research on that? Um, either Don or, or both of you actually um, may, may be able to comment on that. Well, I know that universally targeting above 65 doesn't deliver a benefit. That doesn't mean in an individual you may choose a higher mean arterial pressure. The opposite question about essentially the, the sepsis or vasomotor equivalent of permissive hypertension is interesting. I just don't know yet. Um, you know, we, we're still in the first uh, 15 years of uh, reapproaching sepsis in general where it seemed to be just an awful cataclysmic and interacting kind of cascade. Um, so I, I can't answer that right now. Perhaps even though we've driven mortality down, maybe fine-tuning with a little bit less fluid, a little bit more pressure is an option or just different sets of targets. I just don't know yet. That would be another interesting downstream question. Right. I, you know, I think the the issue of permissive hypotension and, and trauma, you know, really uh, the, the, that initial study, um, the Parkland study, really was related to limiting uh, ongoing blood loss um, in, in patients uh, before surgical control was obtained. Um, and, you know, those those patients typically are young and pretty healthy. Um, and so, you know, an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old potentially can tolerate a, a, a systolic of 70, you know, for an hour or so um, before a control is obtained. Um, uh, the, relay, relating that to the pathophysiology of sepsis um, and, um, and tissue perfusion, I think, is, is, is a bit difficult, but I do agree that uh, balanced resuscitation, um, you know, uh, has improved significant, significantly. And I think overall, uh, regardless um, of, uh, of the disease process, um, over-resuscitation or aggressive resuscitation um, is, is, has been limited uh, or has been curtailed uh, because of, you know, uh, things like hypotensive resuscitation and things like that. So I think it's 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 a tough it's a tough leap to go from the surgical young healthy trauma patient to you know an older or patient or a patient with a disease process that's complex you know that um, uh, that uh, may start off with organ failure in the extreme cases. So Ruby, uh, I need you to provide some clarity for me for a second. Okay. Be very very careful. You'll define. Older patient for me. Be very careful. <laughs> right, that's true. Well, yeah, define older patient. Anyone older than me is what I, is the right answer. <laughs> well, I should. I feel the same way. Um, I, you know, I think older is not necessarily age. It's it's uh it's um it has to do with comorbidities and it has to do with the disease processes. Um, so you know, I, I think um, a 50 year old with diabetes, hypertension. Um, uh, some renal dysfunction is older than a 70-year-old with no with no medical history, but maybe some mild hypertension. Um, I think it has to do with disease processes. Our uh, our patient our population um, in, in the United States, everyone is getting. I mean, people are older, um, but there's more diseases out there, and even in the younger populations, we're seeing. You know, young kids who are obese with diabetes, hypertension, and things like that, and I think that ages the body more so than the actual number. And the surgical population, actually all populations for that matter, there's increasing interest in, in this concept of frailty as, right. a, as a much, much better marker of, of potential perihospital mortality and morbidity. 
Right. Yeah, we, um, we are looking here at our institution about doing a frailty assessment on virtually all admissions because, you know, if you don't assess the background frailty, it's easy to knock a lot of dominoes down that are either surgical or intensive care related that in the long run maybe aren't all that beneficial, that people can't really, because of the underlying frailty, can't really tolerate what you're planning for them. That's a great point. That's a great point. I was hoping to end by asking both of you two questions. Um, and, and maybe I'll start with Ruby and then and end with Don. Ruby, um, the first question is, how has process changed your practice? And uh, the second question is, what take-home message do you have for our, for our listeners? Um, I think the, the process trial has uh, confirmed um, to me um, that sepsis and septic shock is a, is a complex disease process, and um, early resuscitation and monitoring um, and having a, uh, the physician and healthcare providers at the bedside is important. Um, that certainly um, has not changed and will not change. Um, but uh, the uh, accumulation of data and um, our broad approach to these patients in regards to uh, early antibiotics, de-escalation of antibiotic therapy, uh, low tidal volume ventilation, a number of things that we do that have changed over the years um, has contributed significantly to improved outcomes. And I think the outcomes can even get better uh, with time um, as uh, the knowledge of this disease process continues to evolve. And uh, a take-home message? I think the take-home message is that um, uh, you know, medicine um, uh, you know, obviously um, is changing. We have um, many types of healthcare providers that can participate um, in the care of patients, you know, based on protocols and guidelines. Um, I think in regards to sepsis and septic shock, um, uh, you know, we, we still can make huge leaps um, in regards to outcomes. But what we've seen over the last two decades is significant in, in, in regards to improvements in mortality. And that Rivers paper still, I think, has withstood the test of time. Early aggressive resuscitation uh, is, is the way to get the patients uh, where they need to be um, and to get the process started. But we can still make improvements in monitoring. Um, you know, the use of invasive uh, monitoring, I think, is going to continue to go away, but our use of other tools like ultrasound and other non-invasive tools to assess cardiac function will, uh, you know, be, will be able to guide us even further. Um, and hopefully all of these things will not only improve our training but will in, impact outcomes in the future. Thank you, Ruby. And, and Don, same questions for you. How, even though I know you're the lead author, how has the result of the process trial changed your practice? And uh, please, a take-home message for our audience. So at the beginning of the trial, I thought there was equipoise amongst the different approaches to resuscitation. I did not know that one was better than the other. And what the trial convinced me is, is that, in fact, that remains true, that that early uh, interventions are the key, not so much how you do it. I didn't didn't know beforehand. I didn't really have a I didn't have a dog in the fight, as it were, about one specific type. And uh, the trial confirmed that. And then the follow-up two trials really coming. It's amazing. We had harmonized the outcome measurements, but the trials were all independent. And the the, the data look for three 
different trials in three way different parts of the world look amazingly similar. So I think it, it suggests that the observations are valid. What's the take home message? In the emergency department, which is where my, my activity is, look early and often. Recognize if you don't do that, you're going to under-recognize. And do the simple steps that matter. And that's source control, antibiotics, volume and pressure, find some targets, and look again and again. It's just as simple as what we do in the first four to six hours can either open up possibilities for our ICU partners downstream and ultimately our patients, or can shut them off. If we ignore organ dysfunction and hypoperfusion, we actually can limit the opportunities downstream. Thank you for those great comments. I want to thank uh, Dr. Donald Ely and Dr. Ruby Skinner for taking time out of their very, very busy schedules and sharing uh, such uh, engaged and informative trauma cast with us. So thank you all. Thank you both for participating. Thank you. All right. Thanks. And uh, thank you all for listening. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships, and career development, remember... That all you need to do is look to the east. Mm-hmm.